Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome back to another installment of Christmas with Meister Eckhart. Um, really happy about the reception of the first video in this series. And I'm very excited to be reading another one of Meister Eckhart's beautiful Christmas sermons for you on this um, second week of the Advent season in, in preparation for Christmas. I realized that even, again, I'm, I'm recording this on the Sunday, but again, I'm probably not going to be releasing it on the Sunday because today I am putting out a video about uh, uh, Lucia, or St. Lucy's Day, with you know a collaboration with my friend Angela, and so I'm probably going to be waiting. I'm going to wait with this uh, Eckhart video until maybe tomorrow or something, so that it doesn't interfere with with that other video. Um, but nonetheless, very excited to be here again, and I hope you are as well. Um, I'm not going to introduce Eckhart in the same way that I did before this time. I think if you want a, a thorough introduction to Eckhart and his thought then you can either just watch my quick summary in the beginning of the first video in the series or go watch my full 45-minute video on, on Eckhart that I did a few years ago and there will be links to that in the description and so on. Um, first of all, uh, by now the traditional lighting of the candles. I'm going to do it once more. Hopefully it'll go as smoothly as last time, um, this time as well. And yes, we, I'm already... I already lit this this morning because I'm not going to be wasting candles. Um, here we go. I did it. Welcome once again. Today we're going to be reading the second sermon. The second sermon is um, a bit more complex. It goes more into that 
um, theme of the birth of the word in the soul, the birth of the sun in the soul, what that means, and that theme of unknowing, um, which is what leads to that birth of the soul or the experience of that birth in the soul, uh, a little more deeply in this one, which also makes it a little more uh, difficult, a little harder to, to sort of uh, uh, to, to, to grasp fully. Um, but I think we can make it through it. Uh, the consensus for the last video seems to have been that you want me to keep commenting as we go, so I'm going to keep doing that, although I don't think I will have as many comments this time, partly because, um, well, we covered a lot of it already last time. There might be some repetition, of course, but also because it's more difficult, so even I'm sometimes a little bit, you know, confused by what's being said, so... Uh, but we're going to do our best to, to sort of comment where, where we can, and, and we'll, we'll sort of get through it together. It's not, I'm, I'm, I'm like building it up as if it's something really, really difficult. It's not that difficult, but it's certainly uh, more dense than the last one. Um, the last one was a bit more broadly about, you know, this kind of knowledge, you know, the mystical knowledge, and very sort of covered a lot of, a lot of the basis of Eckhart's thought. This one goes more deeply into that particular aspect. Um, that is at the center of, of Christmas for Eckhart, which is the birth of the Son, both in eternity, in the, in the ground of, of the Father, or sorry, the ground of, of God, the Grund, but also, of course, in the ground of the soul, because, once again, the ground of God and the ground of the soul is one and the same ground. And he's going to be talking a bit more about that in particular here. There's going to be some nuancing, and uh, yeah, we'll discuss that as we go. Um, again, we're going to be using um, the translations of Maurice O'Connor Walsh, which I think is, is a very competent and beautiful translation. This, this book, the, the, uh, the Complete Mystical Works of Meister Eckhart, is, is, is a book that I highly recommend for anyone who's interested in, in this really fascinating Dominican philosopher slash mystic theologian. So we're going to get right into it. This is the second sermon of Meister Eckhart's series of sermons during the Christmas season. The Bible verse in question this time is Matthew 2, verse 2. Where is he who is born King of the Jews? Now observe, as regards this birth, where it takes place. Where is he who is born? Now I say, as I have often said before, that this eternal birth occurs in the soul precisely as it does in eternity, no more and no less. For it is one birth, and this birth occurs in the essence and ground of the soul. Right? So here he summarizes that whole idea. Right? Because the Son is being born in the, in the ground of God and the, and, the, and the Godhead, and because the ground is one, that means that this birth is taking place in the soul, eternally, at all times, in the eternal present. Now certain questions arise. First of all, since God is in all things as intelligence and is more truly in them than they are in themselves, and more naturally, and since wherever God is, there he must work, knowing himself and speaking his word, in what special respects, then, is the soul better fitted for this divine operation than are other rational creatures in which God also is? Pay attention to the explanation. God is in all things as being, as activity, as power, but he is fecund in the soul alone. For though every creature is a vestige of God, the soul is the natural image of God. 
This image must be adorned and perfected in this birth. No creature but the soul alone is receptive to this act, this birth. Indeed, such perfection as enters the soul, whether it be divine, undivided light, grace, or bliss, must enter the soul through this birth, and in no other way. Just await this birth within you, and you shall experience all good and all comfort, all happiness, all being, and all truth. If you miss it, you will miss all good and blessedness. So, he brings up this idea that not only is the ground of God and the ground of, of, of the soul the one and the same ground, but God is also um, the ground of everything. God is in all things as being, he says. God is being, according to Eckhart. There is no being aside from God. Um, God is the very concept of being, and thus the being, any, any, any being that we experience in the world, that is God, um, although the creatures, the, the things of this world, the multiplicity, they are actually nothingness. And so they are both, when we see all these things around us, it is both God and not God at the same time, in some mysterious way. And we can understand this primarily through um, this idea. Um, he sort of adds this, this little um, phrase at the end of many of these uh, sayings, in that he would say, my, for example, say, me, my being is God insofar as it is being. And that's an important section there at the end. My knowledge or my wisdom, is God insofar as it is knowledge. So all these attributes, being, oneness, intelligence, whatever it is, all these actually only truly belong to God. And this is a kind of, almost a platonic kind of thing, right? Um, in that my being, there is only God's being. So any being that I have, that's actually God's being. That's God. But only insofar as it is being. I am not God in my creatureliness, if you know what I'm saying. I am not God in this uh, body in this multiplicity, uh, you know, although, you know, there are, that's complicated too because God is the ground of everything, but, but in terms of my being, I am God insofar as I am being. And, and this is a very nuanced thing, but it's very, it's very important in order to understand Eckhart properly. Um, for example, so we don't understand him as a pantheist or something like that. He is not equating the world of multiplicity in its, in its totality with God in a sort of direct way. Um, not all, of, all of this, th those candles, me, it's nothing. It's nothingness. But in some way it's also being because it exists, but that, that existence, that being is God insofar as it is being. Okay, so... It, it gets complicated, but I hope you can sort of follow what I'm saying. Um, so that's a bit of what he's saying here. Um, that everything, everything's, all things, their being is God. And God is in all things, in a certain sense, in that sense. But he's also saying that the soul, and I understand this as meaning the soul of the human being in particular, is the only place that is sort of um, receptive of this birth of the word, in a direct sense. So... And, and he will continue this, this, this theme of that the human being is still, of course, somewhat unique. The soul of a human being is unique in creation. Um, and he's going to get into why that is, but um, that's, that's what he's saying here. Um, no creature but the soul, is, uh, the soul alone is receptible, receptive to this act, to this birth. And so he's also saying here 
what we said in the last video, that this birth of the sun, which th this whole sermon and all of the Christmas season is about, is a sort of, is, is the phrase that refers to the utmost mystical experience, right? Of this kind of union with God, of, of being overwhelmed with this unity and this, the, all of this unknowing knowledge. It all is represented by this, this theme of, of the birth of the sun. That was a long, this was a long comment on just those first couple of, of, of uh, paragraphs, but um, I think that's important to, to keep in mind. So let's, let's continue here. Whatever comes to you in that will bring you pure being and stability, but whatever you seek or cleave to apart from this will perish. Take it how you will and where you will, all will perish. This alone gives being, all else perishes. Everything but God will perish, ultimately, is what he's saying here. So the only thing that we can seek that will not perish, that will not sort of escape our grasp and just, um, you know, like in, in Ecclesiastes, everything is just a mist or smoke. Everything is, uh, um, I can't remember the translation they're using, but everything is, is um, empty. We can, never, we can never grasp anything. It's like smoke. Um, except for God, and that is the true knowledge that we can have. This alone gives being, all else perishes, but in this birth you will share in the divine influx and all its gifts. You cannot be received by creatures in which God's image is not found, for the soul's image appertains especially to this eternal birth, which happens truly and especially in the soul, being begotten of the Father in the soul's ground and innermost recesses into which no image ever shone, nor soul power peeped. The second question is, since this work of birth occurs in the essence and ground of the soul, then it happens just as much in a sinner as in a saint. So what grace or good is there in it for me? For the ground of nature is the same in both. In fact, even those in hell retain their nobility of nature eternally. So a good a question here, right? At least to a Christian, if if this if this birth takes place in, in the soul, if this the soul and the ground is one in this sense, that means that this is happening in all of us, even a sinner, as much as a saint. So, and that can become a theological question, right? How, like, what's the use then of, of being a saint, if if this is happening to everyone, right? So that opens up for a lot of um, maybe confusion or. Or antinomianism, uh, antinomianism, for example. So he's going to try to address that. Now note the answer. There's a property of this birth that it always comes with fresh light. It always brings a great light to the soul, for it is the nature of good to diffuse itself wherever it is. In this birth, God streams into the soul in such abundance of light, so flooding the essence and ground of the soul, that it runs over and floods into the powers and into the outward man. Thus it befell Paul, when on his journey, God touched him with his light and spoke to him. A reflection of the light shone outwardly, so that his companions saw it surrounding Paul like the blessed in heaven. The superfluity of light in the ground of the soul wells over into the body, which is filled with radiance. No sinner can receive this light, nor is he worthy to, being full of sin and wickedness, which is called darkness. Therefore, it says, the darkness shall neither receive nor comprehend the light. That is because the paths by which the light would enter are choked and obstructed with guile and darkness. For light and darkness cannot coexist, or God and creatures. If God shall enter, 
the creatures must simultaneously go out. A man is fully aware of this light. Directly he turns to God, a light begins to gleam and glow within him, giving him to understand what to do and what to leave undone, with much true guidance in regards to things of which before he knew or understood nothing. So he's comparing, um, he's using a metaphor of light here. And, and uh, Eckhart is pretty Neoplatonist in a lot of his thinking, and I think it shows here um, in that he's comparing God versus whatever is not God with light and darkness. Right? This God pours, pours his light into the soul, um, or the soul is receptive to that light when it sort of empties itself of all things, then it is receptive to the light of God. And he also seems to say here that it somehow sort of flows over into the powers of the body too. That So for a saint that is truly receptive to that light, uh, and there is nothing obstructing that light through sinning, for example, then that light can sort of uh, flow over into their actions and, and, and their powers and, and into their behavior as well. Whereas for a sinner, there's a bunch of just clogging, like darkness, like uh, stuff in the way so that the light cannot get there. This reminds me of this Neoplatonic idea, uh, which a lot of people, including I think Eckhart and uh, a lot of people within the Abrahamic religions adapt as a sort of solution for the problem of evil, right? Um, if God creates all things, and even in some of these theologies, if God sort of, if everything is a sort of reflection of God or, or a sort of manifestation of God, then how do we explain evil? But regardless of how we see that, like evil is always going to be a problem, uh, according to, to a lot of people. How come there is evil in, in the world if a good God created this world? And so the Neoplatonist, and, and by following them, a lot of these Christian, Muslim, Jewish uh, theologians, answer that with this kind of, um, uh, this philosophy of, of negation, or metaphysics, metaphysics of negation, that evil is the absence of God in the same way, or absence of being, which is God, existence, in the same way that darkness is just the absence of light, or, 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 or cold is just the absence of heat, right? So evil, just like darkness, does not have any kind of existence of its own. It's a, it's a lacking. It's a lacking of being, or a lacking of, of God. In a Neoplatonic language, it's the lacking of the one. It's a sort of opposite of the one, the opposite of being. Uh, that is what evil is. And it seems like he's using that kind of language here, uh, where God, it pours his light forth, but, but sinning and evil is sort of represented by the darkness, which is the absence of that light. So we continue. Where do you know this from and in what way? Just pay attention. Your heart is often moved and turned away from the world. How could that be but by this illumination? It is so charming and delightful that you become wary of all things that are not God or God's. It draws you to God, and you become aware of many a prompting to do good, though ignorant of whence it comes. This inward inclination is in no way due to creatures or their bidding, for what creatures direct or effect always comes from without. But by this work it is only the ground of the soul that is stirred, and the freer you keep yourself, the more light, truth, and discernment you will find. Thus no man ever went astray for any other reason than that he first departed from this, and then sought too much to cling to outward things. St. Augustine says, There are many who sought light and truth, 
but only outside where it was not to be found. Finally, they go out so far that they never get back home or find their way in again. Thus, they have not found the truth, for truth is within, in the ground, and not without. So he who would see the light to discern all truth, let him watch and become aware of this birth within, in the ground. Then all his powers will be illuminated, and the outer man as well. For as soon as God inwardly stirs the ground with truth, its light darts into his powers, and that man knows at times more than anyone could teach him. As the prophet says, I have gained greater understanding than all who ever taught me. You see then, because this light cannot shine or lighten in sinners, this is why this birth cannot possibly occur in them. This birth cannot coexist with the darkness of sin, even though it takes place, not in the powers, but in the essence and ground of the soul. So, when you, when you, when you experience this birth, when you, when you come to this union, um, that also, of course, affects your outward actions and your, and, your, and your behavior and so on. The powers, as he calls them, which is the sort of outward, everything that is not in the kind of complete pass, passivity of the soul, that's the powers, the soul acting outwardly. Um, and which is why, for example, we discussed last time, you know, a person who has become completely united to God cannot, cannot sin in a certain sense because he is sort of united to God's will. And that light sort of pours forth into his powers, into his behavior from being born in, in the soul. Uh, this is how I read this. The question arises... Since God the Father gives birth only in the essence and ground of the soul and not in the powers, what concern is it of theirs? How do they help just by being idle and taking a rest? What is the use since this birth does not take place in the powers? A good question. Listen well with the explanation. So we, this, um, I hope I'm not cutting off too much here, but again, going back to that idea of like, but... Um, if this takes place beyond the powers, beyond anything that we do outwardly, then what does it matter what we do outwardly? If it's, if it's taking place in the soul, you know, in any way. Or it's, if it's taking place in the soul regardless. Then why should we pray? Why should we all do all these things if this is, this is happening to us whether we like it or not? Um, so he's going to try to explain this here. Every creature works towards some end. The end is always the first in intention, but the last in execution. Thus, too, God in all his works has a most blessed end in view, namely, himself, to bring the soul and all our powers into that end, himself. For this, all God's works are wrought. For this, the Father bears his Son and the soul, so that all the powers of the soul shall come to this. He lies in wait for all that the soul contains, bidding all to this feast at his court. But the soul is scattered abroad among our powers and dissipated in the action of each. The power of sight in the eye, the power of hearing in the ear, the power of tasting in the tongue. Thus, her ability to work inwardly is enfeebled, for a scattered power is imperfect. So, for her inward work to be effective, she must call in all her powers and gather them together from the diversity of things to a single inward activity. St. Augustine says that the soul is rather where she loves than where she gives life to the body. For example, there was once a pagan master who was devoted to an art, that of mathematics, to which he had devoted all his powers. 
He was sitting by the embers, making calculations and practicing his art, when a man came along who drew a sword and, not knowing that it was the master, said, Quick, tell me your name or I'll kill you. The master was too absorbed to see or hear the foe or to catch what he said. He was unable to utter a word, even to say, My name is so-and-so. And so the enemy, having cried out several times and got no answer, cut off his head. And this was to acquire a mere natural science. How much more, then, should we withdraw from all things in order to concentrate all our powers on perceiving and knowing the one infinite, uncreated, eternal truth? To this end, then, assemble all your powers, all your senses, your entire mind and memory, direct them into the ground where your treasure lies buried. But if this is to happen, realize that you must drop all other works. You must come to an unknowing if you would find it. So all the upward powers, you need to sort of, uh, all your outward actions, whether it's the senses or thinking or whatever, all that needs to be shut off. Your whole being needs to be focused completely inwardly on this one single thing, which is to penetrate into that ground, to, to, to break through into the ground where everything is unified in a certain sense. And this is through unknowing. We talked about this last time. It's not, it's not any kind of knowing. You don't know this intellectually. Actually, this is, like Pseudo-Dionysius says, it's a way of unknowing, of, of, of just detaching from all kinds of knowing, in terms of knowing, like conceptual knowing, images or ideas or thoughts, uh, until you know nothing, until you're completely silent, nothing, passive. That is when you can experience the true knowing, which is the union of the ground. The question arises, would it not be more valuable for each power to keep to its own task, none hindering the others in their work, nor God in his? Might there not be in me a manner of creaturely knowing that is not a hindrance, just as God knows all things without hindrance, and so too the blessed in heaven? That is a good question, not the explanation. The blessed see God in a single image, and in that image they discern all things. God, too, sees himself, thus perceiving all things in himself. He need not turn from one thing to another, as we do. Suppose in this life we always had a mirror before us, in which we saw all things at a glance and recognized them in a single image. Then neither action nor knowledge would be any hindrance to us. But we have to turn from one thing to another, and so we can only attend to one thing at the expense of another. For the soul is so firmly attached to the powers that she has to flow with them wherever they flow, because in every task they perform, the soul must be present and attentive, or they could not work at all. If she is dissipated by attending to outward acts, this is bound to weaken her inward work. For at this birth, God needs and must have a vacant, free, and unencumbered soul, containing nothing but himself alone and which looks to nothing and nobody but him. And to this Christ says, Whoever loves anything but me, whoever loves father and mother, or many other things, is not worthy of me. I did not come upon earth to bring peace, but a sword, to cut away all things, to part you from sister, brother, mother, child, and friend, that in truth are your foes. For whatever is familiar to you is your foe. If your eye wants to see all things, and your ear to hear all things, and your heart to remember all things, then indeed your soul would be dissipated in all these things. 
Accordingly, a master says, to achieve an interior act, a man must collect all his powers, as if into a corner of his soul, where, hiding away from all images and forms, he can get to work. Here, he must come to a forgetting and an unknowing. There must be a stillness and a silence for this word to make itself heard. We cannot serve this word better than in stillness and in silence. There we can hear it, and there too we will understand it right, in the unknowing. To him who knows nothing, it appears and reveals itself. This is a very powerful statement of uh, apophaticism and, and particularly of unknowing, this returning theme in Eckhart and in Pseudo-Dionysius, for example. Um, and we've already, we've already sort of been through that, so I don't need to, 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 to repeat that. But I think this section here we just read is a beautiful and very clear sort of explanation of, of what's going on with that particular theme. We continue. Another question arises. You might say, Sir, you place all our salvation in ignorance. This sounds like a lack. God made man to know. As the prophet says, Lord, make them know. Where there is ignorance, there is a lack. Something is missing. A man is brutish, an ape, a fool, and remains so long as he is ignorant. This is a good question. I've gotten this question a lot, too, when I talk about this idea of unknowing, that this seems kind of counterintuitive. Like, why would you want to unknow things? Like, this sounds like he's, he's um, exalting ignorance. And this is actually not what Eckhart is saying, or Pseudo-Dionysius, um, which he will explain in the, in the following words. So I should just be quiet and let Eckhart speak for himself. He says, Ah, but here we must come to a transformed knowledge. And this unknowing must not come from ignorance, but rather from knowing we must get to this unknowing. Then we shall become knowing with divine knowing, and our unknowing will be ennobled and adorned with supernatural knowing. And through holding ourselves passive in this, we are more perfect than if we were active. Interesting, right? So unknowing is not ignorance. To get to unknowing, you must first know things, so that you then can know that you are to unlearn, but, but, but this unknowing is a different unknowing or not knowing than the not knowing you had before when you like legitimately didn't know anything, right? Instead, it's a kind of informed, like he says, he calls it a transformed knowledge. A knowledge, uh, a knowledge beyond knowledge. So it's not an ignorance, it's, it's a hyper... And again, we'll go back to uh, Pseudo-Dionysius. I think he uses... Um, the word hyper, uh, to, to just, um, which is a brilliant move. Uh, it's, it's sort of hyper-knowledge, in, in that it is a kind of knowledge that is, is more true knowledge than, than any other knowledge, but which is also the reason why it's sort of beyond knowledge, why it's unknowing. And then he continues, he says, That is why one master declares that the sense of hearing is nobler than that of sight. For we learn more wisdom by hearing than by seeing, and in it live the more wisely. And I think this is referring to Heraclitus, right? Because I want to say that there's a section uh, among the fragments of Heraclitus where he sort of seems to um, allude to the idea that that hearing is superior to seeing in some way. I could be wrong, but I, I that that sounds like like a Heraclitus thing. Uh, yes, we hear of a pagan master who lay dying. 
His disciples discussed in his presence some noble arts, and, dying though he was, he lifted up his head to listen, saying, Oh, let me learn this art now, that I may rejoice in it forever. Hearing draws in more, but seeing rather leads outward. The very act of seeing does this. Therefore, in eternal life, we shall rejoice far more in our power of hearing than in that of sight. For the act of hearing is for the act of hearing the eternal word is within me, but the act of seeing goes forth from me. In hearing I am passive, but in seeing I am active. Um, and I can't help here but see um, a kind of outdated um, science of optics that, that Eckhart is sort of operating by. Um, so before, there were different theories, of course, but, but by the Middle Ages, the general idea was that the way we see is not that the eyes take in things from, from out, take in light and things from outside, um, and then, then sort of give that information to the brain, but rather that the eyes somehow sort of shoot out these beams um, that make us see things. So the things that the eyes sort of shoot out um, and hits, that's what we see. So that was, that was the, the old sort of classic idea of, of how seeing works. Uh, but with people like Ibn Haytham in, in the Islamic world, um, he, you know, he didn't come up with this idea, of course, but, but he was very important in formulating this idea of the opposite, right? That seeing is actually things coming, not these things going up from the, the eyes and, and hitting things, but rather things coming in from outside. So light going into the eyes and making us see things. So Eckhart here is, is alluding to the idea that seeing is active, whereas hearing is passive. And it seems to me that this is because Eckhart might be, um, I think, I, the ideas of Ibn Haytham, who seems to also sort of prove this idea of light coming in rather than going out. Um, Ibn Haytham is often seen as a sort of father of the scientific method. Um, and he did live before, that, before Eckhart, but I don't think his ideas of optics might have been accepted. But I could be wrong. But it seems like Eckhart is operating from this older idea of the eyes being active rather than passive, because we know that the eyes take in light, which makes them passive. So this, this, this uh, section seems a bit outdated, perhaps, in that sense, but we can still sort of try to see what he's saying here, in that it is the passivity that is superior, because, and this, this connects to his idea of unknowing, that is when we know nothing, when we are passive and completely silent, that is when God becomes apparent to us. So the, the recurring um, theme across these sermons. We continue again. But our bliss lies not in our activity, but in being passive to God. For just as God is more excellent than creatures, by so much is God's works more excellent than mine. It was from his immeasurable love that God set our happiness in suffering. For we undergo more than we act and receive incomparably more than we give. And each gift that we receive prepares us to receive yet another gift. You need a greater one, and every divine gift further increases our receptivity and the desire to receive something yet higher and greater. Therefore, some teachers say that it is in this respect the soul is commensurate with God. For just as God is boundless in giving, so too the soul is boundless in receiving or conceiving. And just as God is omnipotent to act, so too the soul is no less profound to suffer, and thus she is transformed with God and in God. God must act and the soul must suffer. He must know and love himself in her. She must know with his knowledge and love with his love. And thus she is far more with what is his than with her own. And so to her bliss is more dependent on his action than on her own. 
The pupils of St. Dionysius asked him why Timothy surpassed them all in perfection. Dionysius replied, Timothy is a God-suffering man. Whoever is expert at this could outstrip all men. So, so he loves with his love. He knows with his knowledge. So as we said in the beginning, all these attributes actually belong to God. Um, they're, they're sometimes called the transcendentals. And there are, there are a couple of them, like being, oneness. I think intelligence is one of them too. Um, these actually belong to God. And so when we um, love, at least especially when we're united to God, when we reach the state, when we love, we love with God's love, or we know with God's knowledge. That's what he's saying here. So, in this way, your unknowing is not a lack, but your chief perfection, and you're suffering your highest activity. And so in this way, you must cast aside all your deeds and silence your faculties if you really wish to experience this birth in you. If you would find the newborn king, you must outstrip and abandon all else you might find, that we may outstrip and cast behind us all things unpleasing to the newborn king. May he help us who became a human child in order that we might become the children of God. Amen. So that was the second sermon. Like I said, a bit more involved, a bit more subtle and a bit more um, dense, perhaps difficult. But I think Eckhart is comparably pretty clear in his language. That is one of the things I lack about him. He can sometimes be pretty difficult, but um, compared to other mystics, he, he often comes off as very easy to understand, especially these German um, sermons. Uh, reading his Latin scholastic works is maybe a different thing, but in these sermons in German, I think he comes off as, as very clear because he's using his native language. He's sort of, um, he's speaking maybe not in this case, but he's often speaking to the general people, you know? And so he expresses these ideas in, a, in very profound ways in these sermons. And, and, uh, and this sermon in particular, as we saw, goes more in depth into that idea of, of the birth of the word and, and the idea of unknowing and how these connect with each other. And so I think it's a really, really beautiful sermon, just like the first one. This was a sermon that I read a few years ago. So there's already a video of this sermon which is just me reading through it without any breaks or anything and some music behind it. So if you want to just experience it in that way, then you can check out that old video. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed this more involved reading of the second sermon. Um, so yeah, that was, that was this week's Christmas with Meister Eckhart. I, I hope you, you could take something away from, from this sermon. Um, again, you don't have to be Christian or or follow his theology, but there are certain things that we can sort of get inspired by, uh, if anything, just by his amazing way with words and very beautiful way of expressing some of the sort of core aspects of reality. I think, I think there is a lot of beauty in that. Um, and like I said last time, I hope the, the, the holiday season or the, 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 um, the December season is treating you well. There's there's a lot going on, of course, right now. It's the winter solstice, um, it's it's Hanukkah, it's it's um, you know Christmas is coming up, so it's a special time for a lot of people, and so I hope uh, the time is is meaningful and beautiful for you. Uh, we're having a good time here in, in the darkness of Sweden. We have Lucia or Saint Lucy coming up in just a couple of days, which is a very fascinating kind of strange um, holiday that's very popular, in particular here in Scandinavia. 
um, and kind of nowhere else except maybe Italy to some degree. So, um, and I just put up put out a video today as of recording this about that, so you can check that out. Um, but other than that, again, I hope you enjoyed this reading. I hope this season is positive or at least meaningful to you. And I hope you're looking forward to as much as I am next week reading, uh, next week's reading of the third sermon. So until then, I hope your week is filled with light and meaning. And I will see you in the next video. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com code program.